0: Before we pray, I'm going to read our scripture for the morning. It's 2 Chronicles 34. Uh, if you don't know where Chronicles is, um, you can use the Pew Bible and find our passage on page 385. I'm sorry, 384. And if you wouldn't mind standing in honor of God's word and <clears throat> follow along as I read. 2 Chronicles 32, verses 24 to 33. This is background for our sermon text for this morning in Isaiah 38 and 39. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord and he answered him and gave him a sign But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah." And Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses also for the yield of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself and flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions." This same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David and Hezekiah prospered in all his works. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper part of the tombs of the sons of David. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did him honor at his death. And Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so if you want to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 38, we have been going through the book of Isaiah uh, for a while now, and we find ourselves in chapters 38 and 39, and we're going to cover both of those chapters, Lord willing, this morning. So as you're turning there, I I want you to think about something here, the fact that Death is coming for all of us. It's coming for you. Personalize it. The ultimate threat, the threat behind every other threat. And you know what? God is under no obligation to give you fair warning. And do you think about death much? Do you think about how like, the finality is so bracing if you actually let yourself face it? Literally. Eternity. You live on the brink of eternity. And it changes finally and fully, completely like that. The uncertainty of when is sobering. Or you could say the possibility of it at any time. It's another way to say the same point. It's very sobering. We don't like to face death. We don't even like to talk about it in our culture. Death is more of a taboo subject in our culture than sex. Sex. So when do you think about it? When do you let yourself face it a little bit? Or what causes you to face it a little bit? When you get on a plane? When you go to a funeral, it's like a rehearsal for your own death. Ecclesiastes says, better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting, for the living will lay it to heart. This is the end of every man. You know, when I sometimes think about is after I see a movie and there's death in that movie, you you face it. How about when you go into surgery? Think about it. Then, am I going to wake up? Are you ready to die? Who's going to deliver you from that threat? Who are you looking to? So the issue is not if you're going to die. And I know this is obvious, but we just don't face it. We don't let ourselves just look it dead in the eye and deal with it. We just kind of avoid it and hope it goes away so that we don't have to deal with it. No, there's actually grace for this. So if you don't face it head on, you you don't actually get the grace that's needed for it. You don't realize, whoa, I really need this grace. And then you go after it. So the issue is not if you're going to die. The issue is not even when you're going to die. The issue is when you die, will you be ready to die? Well, our text this morning is aimed at helping us be ready, helping us get ready. So Hezekiah faced the specter, this menacing threat of death. And let's look at how he responded here so 38 verses 1 to 3 first off see how he faced death in those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death and Isaiah the prophet the son of Amos, came to him and said to him thus says the Lord set your house in order for you shall die you shall not recover then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said Please, O oh Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So we don't exactly know all of Hezekiah's heart motives. Seem like from all that we can read about him is that they were probably kind of mixed, like probably all of us, some of them selfish. But we do know that he went to the right place when the shadow of death loomed over him through the prophet Isaiah's words. And God graciously responds and gives him a sign of deliverance. Look at verses 4 to 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, this is in response to his prayer, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Which actually, we ought to stop and note this, we're actually dealing with a living God here. We're dealing with a real God as opposed to the gods of the nations, the idols that are deaf. They can't hear prayer. False gods. They can't see tears. This is the real God, so he hears his prayer, sees his tears. Although it's interesting, he doesn't note anything about his faithfulness and good works. Remember how Hezekiah appealed to that? He doesn't say, you know, you've been such a good guy, I'm going to be merciful to you. He actually just says, I've heard your prayer. That's it. It's just mercy here, Hezekiah. That's instructive. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. Oh, if you were here last week, what do you notice here? This is out of order. Timing-wise. The last two chapters, the military threat of the Assyrians knocking on the door, and Hezekiah prays, and the Lord delivers. So here, it's future. So apparently... This happened right about the same time, right before the threat of the Assyrians knocking on the door. That's important. We'll come back to that. I just want you to note it. This shall be the sign to you, verse 7, from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz, turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the ten steps by which it had declined. So, the Lord graciously gives this sign, you see it there in verses 7 and 9, and whether it was some kind of thing where the the shadow would be cast down steps and um, as the sun went down or whatever it was, doesn't matter, the point is the same, this is a miracle. Shadows don't go backwards. So it's this localized miracle, most likely, that just God can do whatever he wants. If he can say, let there be light, he can have the shadow go back 10 steps. So, but think about the timing. Remember how I said this is before, chronologically speaking, the rescue from Assyria. If this took place before the Assyrian army knocked on the door, then this sign was strong reason to trust the Lord when the military threat came knocking. So first his health threat, death threat, he prays to the Lord, Lord gives him a sign, delivers him. Now there's a military threat. If you just got delivered miraculously, you're more inclined to trust the Lord for another miraculous deliverance. How kind of the Lord to do that! To strengthen his faith in preparation for a very scary military threat. The Lord was so merciful and responsive and willing to come and deliver in both cases. So the health death threat was a setup. So that Hezekiah would help save the entire city by looking to the Lord. The Lord already told him he was going to deliver. You see that? It's amazing kindness on the Lord's part. So Hezekiah's faith was primed and ready to respond when chapters 36 and 37 happened and that threat from the Assyrians. The Lord didn't have to do that. But isn't this just like the Lord to do that? He often, listen, he oftentimes causes suffering to alleviate greater suffering. Think of Joseph in Genesis. At the end of Genesis, you have, in verse 20, 50-20, he says to his brothers, who caused his pain, they threw him in a pit, all all this time in jail, all this unjust suffering. He didn't get vindictive. He didn't punish them. He said, you know what? I know now that God sent me ahead of you all to preserve many people alive. Oh, man. He could have got even so bad with those guys. But he trusted the sovereignty of God, and he knew that his temporary, immediate, narrow-view lens, telephoto lens suffering was intended by God to bring the preservation of life for so many because he ended up storing up all this grain, for this crazy long time of drought. The brothers intended it for evil. God intended it for good to save many people. God will oftentimes cause suffering in order to alleviate suffering, greater suffering. So, that's our God. He's trustworthy. Now, notice where the text goes next. It actually is this rehash of what we just read about, but it's from a different angle. It's basically like getting a page from Hezekiah's journal from when he was ill and at death's door. Verses 9 to 22, that's basically what it is. Let's read it together here. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick, so he's after the fact, looking back on his experience, after he'd been sick and had recovered from his sickness, I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. This is in the moment. He's, this is, he's like tracking his process. I must depart. I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living." I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me. He's, he's mourning here. Like a shepherd's tent. Imagine, you know, the shepherds had to go where the grass was, right? So the shepherd would set up his tent. Good little house for a shepherd. But as soon as the grass is gone, you pull that thing up, you pack it up, and you go. That's what death is like. We have this little temporary tent but we're like grass. And it goes, we go. Like a weaver, I've rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the, womb, from, the, from the loom. So you can imagine seeing someone working on a loom over months and whatever, and they finally get to the point where their, their work is done. You know, it was, da- it was there day after day. All of a sudden, just like that, you roll it up, a few decisive snips, done. That's it. Evocative pictures here. He then says, I think this is a little bit of an odd translation. I calm myself until morning. I think it's probably something like I waited patiently until morning or I cried out until morning. Because look at where it goes from there. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. So, like a shepherd's tent, like a weaver. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Remember the pride? It's talked about in our text. He viewed this as God's judgment. And he was suffering in the face of death. Verse 14, like a swallow or a crane, I chirp, I moan like a dove. In other words, I'm just chirp, chirp, chirping, and it seems like my prayers are ineffective. My eyes are weary with looking upward, O Lord. I'm oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he's spoken to me. He himself has done it. In other words, I'm going to die. I can't appeal. Turn this back. It's hopeless. I'm powerless. I will walk slowly all the rest of my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O oh Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O oh, restore me to health and make me live. Verse 17: Behold, it was for my welfare, shalom, in Hebrew, that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you've cast all my sins behind my back, behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. They didn't have quite the clear understanding of the afterlife in the Old Testament. hadn't been revealed with clarity. The living, the living, He thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. He didn't even have an heir at this point, which in that day and age was viewed as the judgment of God. The Lord will save me, and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. And then these two comments about how he was healed, and then why the sign was given. Now, Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. A little weird for us. It's a poultice, basically. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on this, but all I know is my Italian grandma that lived to be 100, she had this bread and lard thing. It was magic, okay? It was miraculous. You put it on, on a bruise, and it was... Crazy, so something like that. Actually, there, there, even one of the commentaries. There's medical, um, you know, talking about how the sugars can draw out, blah, 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 blah. Okay, we won't need to. We don't need to go into that. Cake of figs applied to the boil. Carbuncles. Go ahead and look them up. You know, at that time they could actually be de- deadly, and he recovers. God is. He can heal through miraculous means. He can heal through other means, and it's still him doing the healing. And then Hezekiah also said, "What's the sign that I will go like?" How do I know this is going to happen? And we already know that answer. The Lord gave him the sign of the the shadow coming back 10 steps. So what do we learn from this journal entry? Well, I think verse 17 is the key. Look at it again. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. So he learned some things and in more than just an informational sense. In fact, I want you to hear some of the sympathetic vibrations from the way the psalmist writes about suffering and what he learns from it in Psalm 119. So flip over to Psalm 119 for a minute and look at a few verses here in close proximity. Psalm 119.67, which is on page 513 if you're using the... Bible. (laughs) Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Any of you know that? Loving, let's say severe mercy. Ever experienced that? Where the Lord's Discipline of you, the, the suffering, some affliction ended up drawing you back to Him off, like you were wandering, you're in the ditch, and now you're keeping His word. You learn vital lessons in that time. How about just skip down a few verses to verse 71? It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And I think that's learning more than just cognitive. Information. This is, I really learned them. And then verse 75, finally here. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So it was for Hezekiah's welfare. So Shalom has the idea of soundness and completeness and wholeness. We oftentimes translate it peace, but it's probably quite a bit broader than we typically think. And you know what? Sometimes the Lord needs to break us in order to make us whole. Again, we're learning about the character and the ways of God. That is incredibly important and practical. We need to believe it. We sometimes need to be shattered in order to be made complete. Look back at verse 10 in this section, in this journal entry, as it were. You see where he writes, in the middle of my days? So Hezekiah was around 39 at the time. So he's in his prime. Middle of my days, in his prime. In other words, this came when he least expected it. So for us... Doesn't it seem like it always comes when we least expect it? I mean, how many times I've heard, even in the church, people are surprised and they wonder and wrestle with God even when their loved one dies in their 80s or 90s. It can surprise us. It comes when we least expect it. So when these threats come, if we believe what Hezekiah learned here that the Lord afflicted him for a reason. It was for his welfare that he had great bitterness. It was loving. Then guess what? If you have or you get in the future cancer, don't waste. John Piper had a sermon, I think, by this title, but don't waste your cancer. It's not just something to hopefully get past. God has intentionality in that suffering. He wants to do things in your soul. Don't waste any life-threatening illness. It is practice for the final act. And we're all going to face that. And we may have time to kind of wrestle through it if it's a slower suffering. We may not, too, if we just die in a car wreck like that. Not everyone gets early threats to test and refine their faith, but many do. I'm pretty young and pretty healthy, and I've had several. Beth has had several. So let's give thanks for those and not waste them because God has intentionality through the affliction. He wants to teach us things. He wants to work things and make things real to us. Listen to uh, commentator Oswald. He says, how easily we human beings consider the years of our lives an inviolate possession. Nobody can violate this possession of mine. But that's not true. We have only today and perhaps not all of it. We are distinctly dependent creatures and if if such experiences as Hezekiah's help us to face what that fact means for present living and eternal destiny, destiny, then they are very beneficial experiences indeed. You know, Psalm 90, verse 12, the Psalm of Moses, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Or James 4, where he says, come now you who say, tomorrow, or today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So Hezekiah learned some things from his brush with death and from his recovery. But this turn of events also triggered something else. Look at the curse of false trust treachery at the beginning of chapter 39 so look at 39.1 here at that time Merodach Baladon the son of Baladon king of Babylon sent envoys with letters and a present do you remember the text we read in the matter of the envoys the Lord let him be to see what was in his heart it was a test of faith see what happens with this test sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Hmm, what's going on here? Could be for peaceful diplomatic relations, you know, kind of like Solomon and King Hiram of Tyre. Or could be something a little more sinister. Hezekiah didn't seem to inquire of the Lord which this was. He seemed to just welcome them gladly. Verse 2. And he showed them his treasure house. Remember, this is before, timing-wise, the threat of the Assyrians. So could he still be, you know, driven by this misguided desire for safety that inclines him to look to Egypt for help? And, ooh, let's make an alliance with the, with the Babylonians as well. He showed them everything. He showed them the treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. This is not sounding good. And Isaiah confirms it. Look at verse 3. Then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. I'm so flattered. They would come all the way just to you know, wish me well and tell, tell me that they're so thankful that I'm better. Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that, I'm sorry. So Isaiah responds, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. I wanted to impress them, you know, so that they would want to partner. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house And that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So what's going on here? I I think 36 to 40 is all about the Lord coming to deliver. Who are you going to look to? Who are you going to trust in? And here, in this moment, Hezekiah looks to the wrong person, people. When we open ourselves up to false trusts, when we look to other things and people to come and deliver us, give us the safety, the comfort that we long for, when we give ourselves to people or promises that flatter us, when we trust in false trusts, inevitably those things turn on us and end up ruling us and oftentimes destroying us. That's what happened. Babylon came And crushed. They basically were making inventory. Oh, that'll look good in my uh, garden, whatever, you know? There's a guy named Vishal Mangalwadi who ministers in rural India to help the poor escape poverty. And a while back, Chuck Colson wrote about him in a breakpoint thing, just before Colson died. And he said how he knows firsthand the practical consequences of a false worldview. He relates how a village of poor farmers has been unable to overcome the repeated catastrophic flooding of their fields. Why not? Because they worship the river that destroys their livelihood. They never would have thought to create channels to divert the water. Instead of establishing dominion over the river, they have let the river, a god in their eyes, establish dominion over them. Now that might seem like, well, that's silly. But see, we think we can use the idol, the false trust. We think we can remain in control. And the idol ends up ruling us. So we buy the promise of reward or protection or pleasure or comfort or whatever. We think we can control it, and it ends up controlling us. Think about just one very, well, a few, but a few very ordinary examples. Think about food. Why do we run into food sometimes as comfort? Because Everything's out of control. At least I can control this little realm of pleasure. But then it ends up controlling us. Comfort food, like a refuge. Alcohol and drugs, obviously. The approval of people can be that way. We think we can control it. And then all of a sudden we're a slave. Gambling all kinds of addictive things. It's as old as the garden. The serpent approached Eve, seeking to establish dominion over her, but he offered her transcendence. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be a goddess. And she ate the fruit, the temptation to use the fruit to gain a little greatness, and it turned on her and dominated her. And the same kind of thing happens to us. And here Hezekiah was flattered and he was suckered by his foolish pride. Sadly, his pride was not only the source of his own suffering, but it also contributed to the suffering of future generations. Look back at verses 6 and 7. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, Isaiah warns, bringing the word of the Lord to Hezekiah, when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon, nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you. Remember, he was childless at this point, so um, Manasseh is going to be coming later. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So it's very clear the timing of how all this worked out. Hezekiah's healing was a temporary healing. Fifteen years. It's great. But it was a temporary respite from death. And as such, his healing was like a parable. It was like a foreshadowing of what was going to happen to Judah. They would be delivered from the Assyrian threat. That's what we looked at last week, chapters thirty-six and thirty seven. But they would not be delivered from the Babylonians a hundred or so years later, when they came and crushed Jerusalem. So what happens here, this, remember how I said last week that this section, this prose section, this story-like section, 36 to 39, is like a hinge on which the book turns? 36 and 37 is an embodiment of all that's been said in chapters 1 to 35. 38 and 39 is a setup because the rest of the book is going to be written to the exiles. So it's the hinge. How... how did good King Hezekiah respond to this ominous word that, that the Babylonians are going to come crush you and everyone's going to be exiled? Your, your sons are going to suffer. And it wasn't just his sin. It was other sin all compounded together, but certainly he contributed to it. How did he respond? Verse 8. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, "Yeah, there will be peace, shalom. There will be peace and security in my days. How does that statement strike you? Yeah, I think we should be disappointed and disgusted. Though I think we might want to be a bit cautious about self-righteousness here because we all have an inclination towards selfish, short-sightedness. And, here's the cool thing, we can be encouraged by this stupid, selfish statement by Hezekiah. This statement, I mean, if if you don't catch anything else, you've got to catch this. This statement doesn't undo what the Bible, thus what God, says about Hezekiah and his life as it Assesses his life. Do you remember last week the text that I read was 2 Kings 18, which is also the same thing, the story back in those verses. Just listen. I'll just read a few verses again. Hezekiah was 25 years old. This is the measure of the man. This is the summary of his life. 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. Is God speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Like you just forgot about, like the writer of the Kings just forgot about that stupid thing that Hezekiah said in 39.8? Does this seem like a contradiction to you? Well, guess what? You know what's really encouraging? Is life is messy, and people do stupid things, and still they can be genuine believers. You Remember our scripture reading? In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. but Hezekiah did not make return according to the. Be- it's a roller coaster. What Follow the roller coaster here? Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. The Assyrians press in. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart. Both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, everybody, sackcloth and ashes. So the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Isn't that awesome? The Lord was merciful to this stupid, foolish, prideful, short sighted, selfish guy like you and me. There's hope for us. Think about Hebrews 11. Have you ever been bothered by who's in that list? And I'm not just talking about Rahab, like, well, she was a prostitute before she became a believer, I'm sure she lived, you know. Could. No, Noah's in the list. Remember what happened after the flood? He was a vitner. He gets drunk and passes out in his tent, naked. Abraham lies twice about his wife to save his own skin, putting her in some very uncomfortable situations. Jacob is a deceiver. Moses is a murderer, and he's a stubborn coward. Uh, can you send somebody else? I don't know. I can't remember. Like, Samson is in that list. Does that offend you? These all died in faith. And I don't know about his life. It's a mess. But you know what? When he said, give me, after he'd been humbled, affliction taught him something. When he said, give me strength one more time, that was, uh, that was, he died in faith. And man, if there's hope for a guy like that, there's hope for guys, like, guys and gals like us. So we should never be flipping about sin. It's not like, yeah, God will forgive. That's his job. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. We just need to note how incredibly merciful, incredibly merciful God is. I love this verse in Jeremiah three twelve. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. God saves. Isaiah is just like, do you get it yet? God saves even despite our selfish, prideful folly. Listen to Ortland. I love this. Here we are at the end of Isaiah 1 to 39. People of God have heard the truth, but they haven't received it into their hearts where it could make a difference, and now they're headed for exile. Every human agency is found wanting. Only God remains, and therefore God alone will restore his people by his own grace and power according to Isaiah 40 to 66. How does this story help us today? When we see Hezekiah healed by God in chapter 38 and dazzled by all the wrong things in chapter 39, it doesn't make sense. But that's who we are. We don't make sense. We need constant renewal. And God has a way. So where does that renewal come from? What is God's way of renewal? Well, this just sweet segue in the book of Isaiah. There's another thing we need to see. I think that the writer wants us to see. Isaiah wants us to see here about Hezekiah's failure and what it points to. Guess what? Hezekiah is not the Messiah. As great as he was, he was not the promised righteous king of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and 11, 1 to 5. That was one of the verses, Isaiah 9. Unto us a child is born. They're waiting for this. And you know what? We're disappointed. We hear his selfish statement. We're disappointed. We're disgusted. So we're left longing and waiting for God to come and deliver by means of the anointed one. So think about Hezekiah again. Here's this representative, the king, and he was a great king overall. In the face of predicted death, I don't want to die. In the face of predicted suffering of his sons, at least I won't have to suffer. That's not a good pattern. Jesus is the opposite. The true king is the opposite. He came to die. And he predicted his death throughout his life. And in the face of our deserved eternal suffering, he wasn't concerned about his own comfort. He laid aside his comfort and even his exalted position in heaven. And he, in the words of Philippians 2, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Hezekiah's recovery was temporary, 15 years. So Judah's respite from judgment was temporary. They needed a deliverance deeper than physical health and physical safety. If that's all we're saved from, safety and health, or for safety and health, then our comfort will be temporary and fleeting. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. I love this quote. If we spend our lives in the pursuit of temporal happiness, as riches or sensual pleasures, credit and esteem from men, delight in our children and the prospect of seeing them well brought up and well settled, etc., all these things will be of little significance to us. Death at death. Death will blow up all our hopes and will put an end to these enjoyments. We must be taken away forever from all these things, and it is uncertain when. It may, it may be soon after we are put into the possession of them. And then where will be all our worldly employments and enjoyments when we are laid in the silent grave. So we all need a deeper deliverance. People of Israel, they were brought out of Egypt. Circumstantial deliverance. You can take the slave out of slavery, but you can't take the slavery out of the slave. Circumstantially, they were free, but spiritually, they're still slaves of sin. Jesus came to free us from slavery to sin and death. So let's circle all the way back around to the threat of death again, like we started. It's coming for all of us. It's the threat behind every other threat, almost. It's not the threat behind every other threat. There's a threat behind that ultimate threat of death. Penultimate death. Death is the ultimate threat only if there is eternal loss on the other side. Only if there's condemnation under God's judgment on the other side. That is really the threat behind the threat of death. But if you know that the wages of sin is death, that Jesus died in your place, paying the debt of your sin that you couldn't pay, if he was condemned so that you could be pardoned, if he went through hell so you wouldn't have to, if he died to kill the threat of ultimate death, and he rose again for that very reason so that you could have the blessed hope of eternal life, there's nothing left to fear. Listen to 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So if Jesus is the Messiah, God's forever perfect king, if he is the way to heaven and he is heaven to us, then death is no longer a threat. It's a servant. Yes, we will mourn and weep, but not as those who have no hope. It's a mere passage to life, truest life, eternal life. So unlike Hezekiah in the face of death, we can say, because of what Jesus did, the opposite of Hezekiah, perfect king, in the face of death, we don't don't want to die. No, we don't want to die. Okay, but ultimately we can say, To live as Christ and to die as Cain. You know how free you are if that's true, if that's real in here? That not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8? And rather than selfishly saving our lives in comfort when Jesus' ultimate threat killing work is real to us, rather than selfishly saving our lives in comfort, we're freed and empowered to lay down our lives in loving, sacrificial ways for the good of present and future generations. It's not, well, at least there'll be peace and safety in my generation. No, it's, I'm gonna lay down my life, my comfort in sacrificial ways for the good of present and future generations. So Jesus came to deliver even prideful, selfish sinners like us. Such good news and hopeful. All we sinners must do is come. So if the musicians could come on up, that's what we're going to close in singing. Come ye sinners. And let this song just lead you right where you need to be. God saves even selfish, prideful sinners like us. Listen to these two verses and we'll sing them. God saves, I'm sorry, Uh, come ye sinners. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. So that's what the first advent is all about. And then the last verse: Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of His blood. Venture on and venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Amen. Let's sing.